My name's Johnny, one of the leaders of the church here. Um, I'm here to continue our series on Genesis 1 to 3, and I would like to ask uh, a question for you to consider. Is, uh, it might be an obvious question. Uh, why do you think that God put Genesis 1 to 3 in the Bible? I'm not, oh, there we go. That's probably too dramatic a drop of the thing. You can think about that while I muddle with this. Well, this is complex. That'll do. Ah, oh, that's perfect. Couldn't have been better. Why do you think God put Genesis 1 to 3 uh, in the Bible? Now, I'm not going to ask for responses. So it's a bit, might make people feel a bit vulnerable, but I wonder what, what you'd say. Uh, I guess, I know this room is not full of most Christians. I mean, we're league above that, obviously. Uh, but if you were to ask most Christians this question, uh, I guess probably including myself until quite recently, I think the answer would usually revolve around giving us information about origins of some sort. And... Uh, I think that would probably be the knee-jerk response. You might, we might go a bit deeper, but I think that would be what people say straight away. And if you did some Googling on Genesis 1 to 3, that's where all the discussions are uh, in internet land. Um, but whatever we conclude, actually, that these chapters say or don't say about origins, we can be pretty sure that's not the reason that God put them in the Bible. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us why uh, God gives us scripture. He's referring to the Old Testament, but I think we can put it for the, for the whole scripture. Uh, in Romans 15 verse 4, uh, Paul writes this, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of scripture, we might have hope. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. He doesn't mean everything anybody's written like he means the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament, um, so that through endurance and the encouragement of scripture, we might have hope. The Bible was written, essentially, ultimately, to give us hope. And uh, I think this, these passages, we should see it through this lens. We should always think of this in the Bible. What, what hope do I gain from this? God is a God who wants to give us hope. Okay, he doesn't want to live, us in, live in despair. He has a hope-filled plan, and he wants to communicate that hope to us. And that should be uh, definitely the lens we view Genesis 1 to 3 by. And so I'd like us to look at this passage today, and there's, there's real hope for us here. I think we can really get to that hope. Um, and when I say the passage, I'm, we're again going to sweep the whole Genesis 1 to 3 in today, just kind of trying to hold it in our heads. Um, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you'd have had that performed otherwise you're just gonna have to dart around just a note on that actually if you have a bible today it would be handy and it may be on in these talks i know we use our devices and stuff and you rely on the powerpoint we will just be flicking about it might be handier to have actual paper i don't know you might operate differently uh, to that um but to get to this hope i want to ask another question it's another why question which is, why did God create the universe? Let's go, why did God put this in the Bible? Why did God create the universe? Let's keep it nice and simple, you know. <laughs> a nice easy one for us. We can quickly do that, can't we? Uh, but I want to look at this question. I think we can get to a really, uh, we can get to a pretty firm answer in these passages here. Um, and there's some good news. And the good news is, as I've said, I think as we look at this question, there'll be hope for you. Does that sound right? A couple of you like, yeah, we like hope. That's good. Hope's good. Okay, so we like hope. But there will be a cost to that hope. Ooh, you like the hope? Did you like it that much? I'll tell you the cost. I want to be very upfront with you. Um, the cost will be that we are going to have to transport our brains from the 21st century world that we live in and take them back to the ancient Near East and try really hard to understand what it was like to be someone who lived thousands of years ago in the ancient Near East. And that is going to be, at some points, tricky, okay? So there's the payoff. Is that hope? But the cost is doing a bit of work. Is that right? 
Yes. Well, that's good. I think that was one of the best years. And Mark's kind of gurgling. That might be your stomach. Uh, so that's a deal as far as I'm concerned. So that's what we're going to do. Right. So get your minds. The minds that are in the 21st century. We're obviously in England, uh, I think. Um, I need to get my mind just awake today, to be honest. Um, but let's take them back and let's go, right, thousands of years ago, what was it like to live in this world? Now, to do that, let's just stay in our world for a minute and let's ask a question because the contrast will help us. Um, let's imagine I was to ask you to draw a picture of the universe. Let's imagine. Now, you, you might have a piece of paper and a pen with you here now, uh, but let's think, draw a picture of the universe. Now, you, you probably say, well, wait a minute, you want the whole universe? That's going to be tricky. I just say, no, no, just start with what you know. Okay, start with what you know about the universe. So I would imagine that many of us would probably end up with a circle with a, some green and blue and some white at the top and bottom. We'd all manage that. And the more, the more complex, uh, the more uh, 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 pictures might be like a few circles and a big glowing ball of fire and some, some concentric circles. It's, oh, great, we, we've got it. Flick forward, would you? A few? It might look a bit like that. Yeah, there we go. We're, we're on track. Great, thanks, guys. Brilliant. Um, might look something like that. Our solar system, we kind of know that. And uh, it, you wouldn't probably be looking over your shoulder at the person next to you thinking, I wonder what they're going to draw. <laughs> like, I wonder what they're going to think the universe looks like. Because we're like, that, that's, that is, it's not an opinion. That's like what it is like. We can see this stuff, you know. Um, and so that's how we'd see the world we live in in the surrounding regions, I suppose. But now let's imagine this. Imagine you ask an ancient person to do exactly the same thing. Imagine someone from the Near East, uh, 2000 to 500 BC, that kind of period of time. Draw a picture of, of the universe, at least the bits you know. Um, wonder what you think they'd do. Again, think about it. Think what kind of things they would include. Think about what kind of things they wouldn't be able to include from our picture. Okay, I've got an artist's impression of something. Uh, James, could you... I'm talking, would you just be able to do the lights and potentially do the... Um, Thing. That's good. Yeah, that's, that's good, actually. That works really well. Um, this is a modern picture, but I think it's pretty... Uh, it's from the data that we can see in, in Scripture and also in other ancient texts. And this would be for a, an ancient Jewish person, maybe about 500 BC, uh, let's say the time of Solomon, okay? This is how they probably would have seen the world. I just think, think of what we see here. Let's, let's talk it through it. it. It looks like it's one of those snow globes, doesn't it? Um, but they, they would have seen the earth covered by a solid dome. That's how most people would have seen, often referred to as the firmament. Okay, and that would be the dome. It's not the atmosphere. There's no ozone layer. They also didn't think of things like that. There's a solid dome uh, around the Earth. And you can see the sun and the stars and all that's there, but it's important that we're not confused by this because they would have had no concept of the sun and the stars and the moon as we would as three-dimensional objects in, in space. Okay, space wouldn't have been a thing for them. And you might think, well, in Genesis 1, though, it says that God made the sun, moon, and stars, doesn't it? Yes, but... They, it also says it refers to them as the lights. And what they would have seen those things as is prob probably holes in the firmament, in the dome, that the light shone through from outside. And they knew that it helped you tell the time and seasons and stuff. But they wouldn't have seen those things as big objects. They just didn't have, how could they have known that sort of stuff? If we get to the bottom, oh, just above this, waters above the firmament. Everyone believed in the ancient world there was waters above the firmament. And at the bottom as well, you can probably make out it's, it's good that it's shadowy. You've got, you can't make it out so clearly, but there are pillars there because they believed that the, the world was on pillars. And you might think, yeah, but that's kind of metaphorical, isn't it? Mm. It's hard to tell the difference in some cases with some ancient stuff, but no, probably they actually thought the world was on pillars. I mean, if you believe in a flat earth, what's it going to be sitting on? And they believe in the pillars of the earth. That's mentioned, again, poetically a number of times uh, in Scripture. 
And you've got this crazy creature that some of you are like, what on earth is that? Uh, that's Leviathan, the chaos creature. Okay, again, for those of you who know your Old Testament, he crops up every now and again in poetic kind of speech about things. And he was seeing this, this shadowy underworld, Sheol, which they're like, this is this strange un- underworld, but it's kind of under the earth. And this is probably how they, how they saw uh, reality, how they saw um, the world or what we call the universe, um, I guess. There's another element of the picture that's really important I want to focus on. There's this kind of beam of light coming from the top down to a very specific building halfway through. And that is a very specific building. They have put in this picture, and I think rightly so, a building in their picture of reality. I I wonder, again, I didn't give you a chance to do the exercise, but if I said draw a picture of the world, I wonder how many of us would include any human structures in that picture. Um, I mean, even the Great Wall of China is unlikely to get a look in. But in any ancient view of reality, probably a particular building would have been very, very important to their view of how things were. Because what we see here is we see a, a, a light beaming down from uh, the heavens to a specific location on the earth, which is really, let's be more specific, uh, would represent something, a connection from the realm of God, or the gods for other cultures, how they saw it, to a specific building. Any guesses of what that building might be? The temple, that's the temple. Great work, that's good. Uh, James, thank you so much. Can we have the lights back on? Uh, is that all right? Fantastic, thank you. Um, and that would be the case, whoa, that is bright. That would be the case for um, obliterate the picture. The beam of light has come. Um, um, strobe effect as well, that's kind of cool. Um, and yeah, so th- it represents not a real beam of light, but a connection between essentially heaven and earth. And that would have been the case for, in, uh, for ancient Israel, but for other cultures had a very similar idea about that as well. Okay, I told you we were squeezing our heads into unusual things today. Why on earth was the temple so important for ancient people? I guess if I say to you, what's a temple? We've all got a kind of idea of that. Most of us would be uh, yeah, it's a place of worship, like a church, like a mosque, like a gurdwara. They'd all be called temples in some ways. But temples in the ancient world were far more important than that. And we can see that from the amount of money ancient cultures spent on their temples. It's, uh, one commentator talks about this uh, and says that actually, if, if you look at the kind of data, the, if you take proportionally how much they spent on, their, on building and upkeeping their temples, it was about the same in ancient cultures as what the US now spends on defense. <laughs> Just to be clear, that's a lot of money. That's a big line in the budget on one building that you have that for a modern observer, we'd look and we'd say, but it doesn't do anything. The building's just there. I mean, what is it? But this is where I suppose why it's so important. Temples in the ancient world were important because they were seen as places where heaven was seen to meet earth. That's what that beam of light represented where heaven was supposed to meet earth in a a very specific and in many ways seems a tangible way. For everyone in the ancient world, there was an understanding that there wasn't just a natural reality, but a supernatural reality too. And people believed that the gods, or for Israel, for God, inhabited the supernatural world, and he needed, or they needed, special places where they could interact with humans properly. And if you did the right Uh, kind of rituals in many of the temples those days or you did the right offering or whatever then God might pop down maybe he didn't really want to be there who knows but there was a way that he could come and he could kind of do his thing and bless people in a a specific way okay does that scene sort of make sense you understand that some of some of you will bring that stuff from kind of old testament things well let's focus in on the the old jewish temple for a second in in two chronicles 
which is an account, one of the accounts of Israel's history uh, in the time of the, the monarchy and their kings. Um, we see the building of the Jewish temple uh, by Solomon. It's given an entire six and a half chapters showing yeah, this is pretty important for these guys. And I'll just map it out for you. The Jewish temple um, would have been, uh, it would have had four e- entrances, but the main entrance faced east. Okay, um, And it was, as you went in through the east, through the entrance, you would come across all these carvings, amazing carvings uh, that would represent mainly fruit trees. There are lots of fruit trees carved and uh, kind, of sta- uh, kind of statues all on top of pillars and stuff. Uh, and also cherubim, cherubim being angels. And the cherubim's specific role was they were guarding the holy of holies, the holiest places, place in the temple that the cherubim were carved to guard it. So just to think of the temple, we'll come back to this in a minute. You see it top right. The temple had three sort of sections. It had an outer bit, okay? And it has the holy place, a bit in the middle. So you go through the door, and that's cool. Whoa, some people weren't allowed in the outer bit even. Some people definitely weren't allowed in the, the holy place. And then virtually nobody is allowed in the holiest place, which you can barely see. But it's a little square to the left-hand side uh, of the, the plan drawing. Uh, so there's these three sort of sections. And the cherubim will be guarding, carved guarding the, the holiest place. Okay? It wouldn't just be impressive because of these artistic kind of embellishments. The material used is also very impressive. Loads of gold, lots of gold would be used. And it was inset with, with precious stones uh, as well. And you'd get priests who'd serve in the temple. And they would, uh, it was the key words that are used, they served and they guarded the temple. Those are the words that often come up uh, again and again. They served and they guarded the temple. Now, in the Old Testament, there are slightly some other symbols involved with the temple as well. This, this temple, Solomon's temple, was destroyed by the Babylonians. <coughs> and about that time, Ezekiel has a vision of another temple. And that, that temple has a, an unusual feature that's not here, uh, which is a river that flows from the temple and flows out into the surrounding areas to bring life wherever it goes. Now, I, I wonder if this question has come up in your mind in the last few minutes, maybe a few minutes ago. This sermon is not exactly doing what it said on the tin, Johnny. <laughs> I thought we were meant to be in Genesis 1 to 3 right now, and you're in some obscure other part of the Old Testament. I wonder if others of you who maybe remember back to a couple of weeks ago, though, are realizing that perhaps we are in Genesis. Sounds very cryptic. I'll explain what I mean. You see, all of those features that we've got there would all be true also of Eden in, the, in, uh, in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. I'll tell you what I mean. I think the references will probably come. If we could just go to the next slide. Great work. Okay. Eden had an east-facing entrance. It was built in the east, but as a key at the end of the story, uh, the entrance guarded by the cherubim, or I suppose the exit for Adam and Eve, uh, was facing the east, very clearly. Okay. It was also obviously full of fruit trees. There were two pretty special ones, but fruit trees were a big feature. And cherubim, uh, again on the entrance they were featured at the end they guard the garden okay the holy place especially when Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden uh, there's a whole passage in, in Genesis 2 uh, kind of I think it's 9 to uh, 10 to 15 around there sorry 10 to 14 it is you've got this weird thing in Genesis 2 which you might have noticed a couple of weeks ago where it goes off and about these rivers he said why are these rivers here who cares about the Euphrates and the Tigris and where they meet and flow out the garden well Again, we've got rivers, just like in Ezekiel's temple. And in the middle of that bit, it makes a real point. And there's loads of gold here and precious stones, just like the temple. A really sneaky one that you wouldn't see necessarily, none, none of us would see, but I think would have been caught by a lot of early, the early audience for this is Adam. 
Okay, here's a question for you. What's Adam's job in the garden? What does he, what does he do? I'm a bit close. Sorry, sorry, guys. I'm personal space. It's good. <laughs> Any ideas? Watched over it, yeah? So if he had a job, what would be his job? Gardener, okay? Uh, in many senses, he's seen as the gardener. Um, however, what's interesting is while he is gardening, he is presented in a way that I think others would have seen a different job. That his, what are his main tasks? Is to, to tend and watch over the garden in the NLT. The words really are serve and guard. What do we say about those words? Those are the words for the priests in Numbers. They serve and guard. Adam is a priest in God's temple. He's a, he's a gardener, but he's also a, a priest. Actually, the link isn't just in Genesis 2 and 3 either. In Genesis 1, which if you remember is the, the kind of the seven days of creation, here we see an even stronger link to temple ideas, but not even just the Jewish temple. Now it starts talking about temples in general across the whole ancient world. Two things. First thing is this. Uh, we know from, from evidence uh, of other civilizations that the number seven... It's very important in most religious practices, but in temples particularly. And often what would happen is there would be a ceremony to kind of set up a temple, to get it going. You know, where they, I don't know if they do it, didn't they? They cut the cord, you know, you get minor celebrities to come and go, hey, cut the ribbon. They didn't do that, just so you know, but I'm a similar thing. Just trying to bring it up to date. Anyway, um, but they'd have these, uh, these inauguration ceremonies that would last seven days. So they definitely had that in 2 Chronicles uh, 9 in the Jewish temple, but also uh, the oldest temple account we have of the Sumerian temple, 2000 BC, exactly the same, seven-day inauguration ceremony. Now that's interesting because in Genesis 1, you obviously have the seven days leading up to the start of where everything can get going in creation. But the real clincher here is another practice we see from ancient people what they did with their temples. And what they would tend to do is they'd build the temple, they'd get it all set up. They'd, I don't know if you're going to carve your fruit trees, whatever, that stuff. What's the last thing that you do? Well, you take the image, in this case probably a statue for most cultures, of their deity or deities, and they bring them into the, into the temple and set them up. And it's like, now we're ready to go. Now the temple's ready to go, ready to roll. Now, obviously, in the Jewish temple, they wouldn't have been so big on statues of God. That didn't go down too well. Um, but just cast your mind back to Genesis 1, and you, I think you can see what's going on here. So in Genesis 1, you've got, just towards the end, verse 27, you've got creation's almost done. You've got light and dark. You've got sea and sky. You've got land and sea. You've got fish and birds. You've got animals. And finally, what does God do? It says this, Genesis 1:27. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What's he doing? He's made the temple. He's putting in the image of God. This is, the readers would have clocked this. Oh, it's a temple. This is what they do in temples. Wow, I understand what's happening. What seems to be going on here is that Genesis 1 to 3 is a story of the building of a temple. God building his temple. Not people, but God. And the temple is the universe. It's just Quickly clock exactly how this works. Remember what I said before, the, universe, the, the temple, the Jewish temple had three sections, okay? And they correspond, uh, many commentators would say, to the universe. The universe are the outer courts of the temple. I think we've got the picture here. Look, even if, when you read this, I've always wondered with this, when it's also like the temple. It's got this thing called the sea, in there, the molten sea is outside. So, as far as I can tell, a massive bowl of water. You've got the sea and the altar, the land and the sea, it represents the universe. That's the outer courts of the temple. Then you've got the holy place, which is kind of the surrounding area to the garden. Interesting geek fact here. It says about the rivers, it says, the rivers flowed from, from Eden into the garden. 
So it's not just the garden is Eden. The gar- Eden is a garden, but goes out into another garden that's around it, the holy place, and Eden itself is the holy of holies. That, that seems to be what's, what's being communicated here, what's going on. And why were people made? Well, we were made in the image of God as priests to serve and guard the temple. We'll come back to us in a minute. But now we get on to the really important bit, and this is where all of this stuff that might sound incredibly technical is leading all towards... What does God do? Genesis 3, verse 8. And I think this verse is it's short and sweet and quite famous, but we just need to savor the tone of this verse. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. All the temple's done. Everything's sorted. Everything's fixed. What happens? The creator of the universe, who's made this for himself, can just wander around completely at ease. Could there be an image, do you think, that is more uh, telling of just being completely comfortable in a place? Just, he just, he's not really walking anywhere in particular. I mean, he finds Adam. It doesn't go particularly well when he finds Adam. Uh, but he finds him eventually. It doesn't look like he's walking to him. He's not on a, oh, I'm on a schedule. I've got to go to do this. He's just walking about. Just, he's rambling almost. I know some ramblers here. He's kind of just enjoying the scenery of, of what's happening. It's strange. It's in this story, God is presented. It's as natural for God to be in this garden as it is for people to be in the garden. Or, for that matter, birds or animals or trees. Why? Because what's happened is God has made heaven and earth to overlap. That was always his intention with this this universe he was making, this, this planet he was making. And here it is. God's just there with his people. It's his home. Why did God create the universe? He made it to be his home. Let's notice one more thing about this temple that I think is important, and we'll build on this in future weeks, but I think it's really important we see in this, this image. Eden clearly functions as the focus of God's presence uh, in Genesis 1 to 3, but it wasn't like God's created this whole universe, and it's like, and I'm just going to stroll around in a garden with you two forever. That definitely doesn't seem to be the feel of this. No, wh- what he does is, he it seems very intent on extending his, the place of his presence, his home. And so after making everything and doing it all himself, and he's got the garden going and all that sort of stuff, he's then like, right, I'm going to change tax slightly, new plan. I'm going to get you two, make you two, here you go, come in. I'll, I'm choosing you two to join me now in helping me to extend the place of my presence, the place of my dwelling, to extend my home. Genesis 1.28, God says, The first command to humans, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. What's implied there? Well, the implication is that as humans multiply, as they fill the earth and they rule over it, they'll be extending this, this what we call this sacred space, this, this place where heaven and earth are operating as they should be, overlaid on each other so naturally until all the earth, maybe the universe even, is fully made God's home. Now, guys, you've done well. That was the pay, the pay, the cost of the hope that will come is done. And uh, I know we've been living in a thousand years ago. So, whoa, I'm just reeling from so much stuff. And it might not even be the ancient stuff. It might just be, what? I've never looked at Genesis like that. I just need to process this information. That's cool as well. That's fine. Um, but just to help you bring it up to that, I think there's a picture we can use to sum all of this stuff up in a more modern way that would help us. And I think it's not perfect, but... As any illustration isn't, but it will, it will work. Okay, yeah, yeah let, let's see where we're going in a second. Let's imagine that I build a huge mansion. 
If any of you who know me, uh, this is going to take a lot of imagination, but I do it on my own, okay? <laughs> uh, maybe if you know me, you'll not be particularly imagining a very good mansion. But anyway, let's imagine I, I draw up the plans and uh, I kind of plan it all out at great length and then I, I get to work and I dig the foundations and I, I build the walls and I put in the, the windows and the beams and the roof and finally, after lots of work, I'm kind of, uh, I look back and I've got it, it's, it's done and it's, it's all good, it's there, but it's really just a shell. And so I get round to the task now of turning my house into my home. And I, I start, let's say I start with the living room. And so I, I go in and I, uh, I buy some comfy, comfy sofas and I put some tasteful decor up on the walls, get a widescreen telly, and there it is, the living room is done, it's great. But at this point what I do is this, I, I, I get on the phone and I, I phone up two of my friends and I say, hey guys, come round. Come around, and then my friends come around, and we just hang out in the living room, and we enjoy my new living room, and we enjoy the most comfy sofas, and we enjoy the, the tasteful decor, and we enjoy the widescreen TV for hours, okay? Uh, but most of all, we enjoy each other's company. But then as the evening finishes, I say, guys, I, I, I actually didn't just invite you around just to hang out in my living room. I've got a plan, and here's my plan. I'd like you to help me... Uh, make this house into my home. Uh, not just the living room, we started there, but the kitchen and the dining room and the hallways and the bedroom. I'd like you to come and help with that stuff. And I'm going to give you uh, a measure of authority on that. You can, kind of, you can have your say on how things will look. I've, I've got some parameters that I want you to work with. But you know what? I want us to do this as a joint venture together, okay, making this house uh, into our home. Um, and doing this all together, and not, not, and not just coming to help, but actually at the end, I want you to come and live with me in this house. I think that is kind of what we're seeing happening in Genesis 1 uh, to 2. Now, there is lots more that could be said about our role in all this, and we'll do that in later weeks. This whole, what does it mean to fill the earth and subdue it? Fascinating. What does that mean for them? What does that mean for us? Uh, we'll come to that. But I, just want to, I don't want to move on from the most basic part of this image. I just want to reflect, I want you to think about this. God made this world to be his home. How does that, thinking, seeing the world like that, how does that help you think about things differently? I want to put it as a lens over your eyes. What does that look like? What does the world look like? What does God look like? What do we look like through that lens? Let's put it in a, in a different way. It would be, or if I get my notes in the right way around, I think this is the right page. Um, God always intended for heaven and earth to coexist on the same plane. That must sound complicated, but just think about that for a second. We, we often think, don't we, of like, here's earth and here's heaven, and <laughs> almost every now and again you might get a bit of interaction. God, come down, Jesus comes, and the Holy Spirit comes. And it's, but yeah, really, these are two things that are going to be kept well separate. No, the intention was for these things to be together. Okay, That was the intention. It was always the intention. A life group last week, we were talking about this, and, and someone there said, it's like there's an extra dimension to the world. I was like, yes, I think that's exactly what's happening here. Again, this is getting a bit abstract, but let's imagine you, you could talk to a cartoon character. <laughs> yeah, anyway, roll with it. Okay, imagine you talk to a cartoon character and you were saying to like Bart Simpson, or saying, hey Bart, there's a third dimension in the world. Did you realize this? Bart Simpson would not be able to understand that concept. Okay, like a two-dimensional character could not understand three dimensions. Now, that's ridiculous, obviously. But let's think now, 
Did you know there's, a, there's another dimension that was meant to be layered on our lives? We're, we're living without a dimension that was always intended to be here. It, it touches, we see glimpses of it every now and again, but the world was made for heaven and earth to be overlapped on top of each other. In one place, yes, but no, to spread and to, to, to in a very real way, to spread around the whole planet. In making the universe, using whichever method God used, he was actually building a temple, his temple. Now, I think it's a real sense that we just need to reflect on such things, and we're going to do that and as we rush to application. What do we do as a result of this? Well, I think we reflect. I think we kind of think, well, what does that mean? I think that's massive. We said a couple of weeks ago, these are the foundations of biblical thinking are laid in Genesis. When you then start pushing that through the Bible, it does change the way you, you see things. I think it's really helpful in that way. And so I am kind of just want to leave this with you. <laughs> off you go, I'm off to the north side. But I would say maybe two little hints or little pointers of maybe ways to start thinking that, that we're going to pick up later and might just need some extra information just as we close very briefly. What does this do for us? How can we think about this in a different way? Well, I think thinking like this affects how we see the church. Again, we'll come much more to this in a couple of weeks. But let's jump from here to the church all of a sudden. You see, once we see God created the world to be his temple, his home, different things in the New Testament about the church suddenly start to become a little, to jump out at us. So 1 Peter 2, uh, 4 to 5, for example, Peter writes this, you talking to churches, okay, communities of Christians. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. We've had temple, right? We had that already. So Jesus is the heart of the temple. That's good. And you, now talking to the church again, you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What is a church? A church is a temple. A church is the closest thing that we have to the Garden of Eden here today on planet Earth. People, don't, they, they do this, don't they? They go, oh, we're going to go and find Eden. And they have these archaeological, we think we found it, it's here. And then someone's like, no, it's not, it's over here. You get these kind of arguments. You know what, according to the Bible, where's the closest place to Eden? It's churches. It's what it is. We're, we're God's temple, just like Eden was. Yes, of course, things are splintered now. And we're going to get onto that in this series. And things are not exactly as they should be. We're going to get onto that later. But how should we understand our church well, it's the place where heaven meets earth. Well, this is the closest to that we've got nowadays. When I say place, what do you mean by place? This garden of meaning was a place. The temple was a place. Church isn't really a place. We're a community. But I think we can, we can put that in different ways. I, I think we can, we can imagine this. It's like in our meetings, gathered meetings like this, or at the river this evening, uh, the church office, when the church gathers to worship. It's like... God's strolling around in our meetings, like that image in Genesis 3.8, kind of just walking around and saying, I'm just happy to be here. I'm just at ease here. This is, uh, uh, this is, where, this is like my home here. I'm just breathing it in. This is great. God walks amongst us. We should expect that as we meet together. As we build friendships together in the church, we seek to love each other as the Bible tells us to do. It's like God's right there just going, this is exactly what I was looking for. This is just, I'm at home here. I'm here, do you, do you want some help? Do you want me to come and step in? Just ask me, I'm, just ask me, I'm here. I'm, I'm here to help. I'm here because I love this. This is great. As we go out from our church community to our workplaces, to our neighborhoods, to our friends, to extend the kingdom of God's beloved son, God's right there with us. He's walking, just like enjoying it. Yes, there's a sense of purpose to what we're doing, but there's also a sense of, this is how I make my home here. I'm right with you. 
you know, when we talk about God being with us, it's like sometimes, does he really want to be here? Yes, he really does want to be here. He made the whole thing as his home. And he's recreating his home. And he's, a key part of that operation today is through the church. Our church is a sacred thing. Eden was a sacred place. The temple was a sacred place. Our church is a sacred thing. Every church is a sacred thing. We're not perfect. Far from it. Things are broken right now. But we should have an expectation in in all that we do is that God is with us like someone just walking around on a Middle Eastern night. Andy and Heather would know this sort of stuff. It's a hot day, I'm imagining, because I've only been to Turkey a few times. And the breeze comes and you're a beautiful garden. That's how we should imagine it. That's how God wants to live with his church. And also, finally, it affects how uh, we view the world around us as well. I've touched a little bit on this a minute ago, but I'll just finish with this. There's this tendency, and it's deep-rooted in us, I think, to see the world split into two different parts. And on one hand, you've got the spiritual and, and the supernatural and the heavenly things. Whoa, and they're obviously really, really important, okay? And then you've got the natural and the earthly and the human things. And, well, they don't really matter a whole lot. And one day they'll all be gone anyway, won't they? So who really cares? And uh, that's so many sermons have been preached on that in Christian churches. Uh, many other spiritual people would have seen that, if you spiritual in inverted commas. But it doesn't really matter how many <laughs> Christians have believed that in the past or now. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not a biblical vision of reality at all. Eden was not some otherworldly garden of spirits somewhere just off Neptune, okay? Just up there in some different way of doing things. And we blew it, and so it's like, and it's like we wake up, oh, what is this? Ah, I've got a body! No way! And you think, this is it. This is some sort of purgatory for us until we learn our lesson and we get to go back over there again, this awful place all around us. Oh, let's make do with it. That's how sometimes these things are presented, no, this earth was made by our God as his home to be shared with us. God is and always has been intimately invested in this world. This world matters to God. He made it at his home. There, there is not a fleeting and light connection between our creator and the creation that he's made. And one day, at the end of all things, Sorry to do this to some of you, because I know that some of you are already processing a million things, and if you've not got to this point, I'm about to say, this is going to push you over the <laughs> edge, probably. Apologies. We'll try to make up for it in the future weeks. We'll, we'll be okay. okay. But you know, at the end of things, our eventual destiny as Christians is not in heaven. Maybe you know that. I don't know if that's new to you. Let's say that again. Our eventual destiny as human beings is not in heaven, if we're Christians. No, no. It's, the plan was never to, right, you've done your time on earth, whisk you off to be with God up there forever. No, what's the end of the story? God comes down to be with us forever. That's the consistent teaching of the New Testament. And that's where the whole story ends. John says this in Revelation 21 verse 3. This passage, sin is defeated, death is done away with. The serpent that we saw a couple of weeks ago is finally crushed. And John sums it out like this. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. End of story. Book closes. The ultimate human destiny 
for the faithful children of God, according to the Bible, is not being whisked off the earth to heaven to be with God forever. It's for God coming back to earth to be with us forever in the home that he always made for that purpose. So basically, well, that could mean a million things. It is not just spiritual things that matter. The world matters. It really does. The world around us matters. Human cultures matter. Our bodies matter. We're gonna, you've got to get used to bodies because you're going to have bodies forever. Jesus didn't come back as Casper the Friendly Ghost. I don't know if you noticed that in the, in, the, in the Gospels. He has a body. Slightly different, but he has a body. Our communities matter. Not just our church communities, but the communities we live in. The places we're in. The people who live there. They matter. So then, why did God make the universe? I think Genesis 1 to 3 tell us he made it to make it his home. And there's all sorts of things uh, you could say, what do I do with that? And we'll look at some of that stuff in the future. But my aim today is, referring right back to what I said at the start, is to try to let the Bible do what the Bible says it should do. And that's to bring us hope. Because to wrap all this up, what we're saying is this, that God is concerned deeply with what is going on down here. He always has been. He cares about your life and my life. He always has been and always will be. And whatever we've done to mess things up and to, 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 to kind of cut, apparently curtail the plans, actually, God is absolutely intent on finishing the job that he started. And through what Jesus did, through his life and death and resurrection, he's found a way to start replanting little shadows of Eden around, little temples Heaven can connect with earth. They're called churches, like Church Central, like the West Site here. And then one day, we will see God's Son making all things new and coming to make his home with us forever, as he always intended. I think that's hope rises in me when I see that stuff. And it's much more productive than asking forever, but did Adam really have a belly button, Johnny? But we'll get onto that in a few weeks as well, so that's good. Can we pray?